Welcome to The Changing World of Work, a podcast series that gives you access to some of the best business minds from around the world. My name is Claire Luby from Irish Times Training. In collaboration with Kevin Empey, founder of Work Matters, we are bringing you conversations with international guests whose cutting-edge insights will disrupt your thinking and make you reflect on today's ever-evolving world of work. Welcome to this episode of the Changing World of Work podcast, brought to you by Irish Times Training. I am your host, Kevin Empey. Josh Burson is the CEO of the Josh Burson Company and a globally acclaimed analyst, author, educator and thought leader. His best-selling books on the world of work include Irresistible from 2022, and he's frequently featured in publications such as Harvard Business Review, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes and The Financial Times. Josh's market-leading research is both prolific and highly topical, with recent themes covering hybrid working, HR technology market trends, the definitive guide to building a dynamic organisation, AI for HR and the four-day working week, to name but a few. Josh Burson, welcome. So, Josh, maybe we could start with what got you interested in this field in the first place, you know, the field of work and and what's kept you in it. I mean, you don't just wake up early one day in your career and say, you know, hey, I'm going to be a global authority in the world of work and organizations. Well, Kevin, I didn't plan this at all. Um, As most people's careers go, mine was just a bunch of accidental situations. I um, worked in technology and sales and marketing and product management for about 20 years. And in around the year 2000, there was a big recession in the in California, in particular in the dot com, when it all blew up, I had been working for an online learning company, I worked for a startup and got involved in online learning in the early days of the internet. And Mm -hmm. there were no jobs in San Francisco Bay Area at the time zero, everybody was laying everybody off. And I always liked to write because I, I was an engineering student, but I also studied English. And I wanted to do some research on online learning. And once I started doing that, and I realized that there was a lot of appetite for pragmatic business research on training at the time and technology-based training, that started me on this new career. So 23 years later, I'm still doing it. (laughs) (laughs) No, because that was one of your first books, wasn't it? One of your first books was on the learning industry. Training measurement book was the first book I wrote, which was this Mm. geeky book about how to measure training, which was a big topic. It still is. Mm. And the way my career went, and I think most people probably can, you know, think about this is everything I did from year to year was an adjacency from what I had done before. So once I got involved in training, Then I got involved in leadership development and then succession management and then um, all the issues around recruiting and performance management and pay. And so these things kind of became interesting to me more and more and more. And because I'm a little bit of a really sort of a scientist, my mind and my my father was a scientist. Every time there was another domain of HR, I thought, wow, let's check this out and see what we can learn about this. So that's how we got to where we are. Yeah, very, very interesting. A bit like myself, my my entry to it was on the business side of running a training company, not knowing anything about training. It was on the business side, but then that adjacency, as you say, was what kind of... much more complicated than people realize. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's bring things up to the present, I guess, uh, Josh. You know, there's a common view, I guess, that we're going through a particularly profound change to work and working life today. But I'd be interested, what's your view on that? You know, where we are and what's maybe different from your point of view over all these years of studying and being a student, if you like, of work. 
What's different compared to maybe other phases of change that you've seen over the years? Well, I mean, if you look at the last two or three years from the pandemic to today, it's in a little snapshot, it feels like it's been very disruptive. Um, but it's been going on for a long time. I mean, we 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 just published this big research study on the four day work week. And, mm. you know, we used to have a seven day work week in the 17 and 1800s. And then we had a six day work week and then we had a five day work week. And then, you know, I, I worked for at least half my career where I had to be in the office at eight o'clock in the morning and I couldn't leave till five o'clock on Friday. You know, now we work from home. We work remotely. We work we work on the plane. We work at the coffee shop. People work in contingent and contract basis very regularly. We have technology to be visually connected, just like we are now, you know, from anywhere in the world instantaneously. We're, we're globally connected. So 24 hours a day, there's somebody out there you could work with. And this didn't just happen overnight. It just happened over sort of a period of time. I, I like to laugh. People don't realize this. But when I was a young working guy in the 70s, we didn't have email. We didn't have voicemail. If you wanted to send somebody a message, you left them a, a message with their secretary and the secretary wrote it on a pink slip of paper and handed it to them. And if they had time, they would call you back and you would pick up the phone and talk to them. So I don't think this is as I know it feels disruptive, but it's been going on for a long time. Now it has mm -hmm. accelerated a lot. And now we have, I mean, what's astounding to me is the challenges companies have with and employees with mental health, with burnout, mm -hmm. with the mix of personal lives, with work mm -hmm. lives. By the way, that was true in the 1970s too. People took work home in their briefcase and they did it all night in their bed while they were watching TV. But it's really affected people a lot and the other thing that's happened is the job market has gotten very competitive. There's a very low unemployment rate in most countries. It's easy for people to find new jobs. They can switch employers very quickly. It used to be very hard to do that. So companies have to be really vigilant and they have to work really hard on making work productive, enjoyable, rewarding, developmental, and positive for people. And when they do that, People respond and they contribute in extraordinary ways. That didn't used to be the formula, but it's a different kind of business formula, formula for how to treat employees or labor or whatever you want to call them. And that's been the sort of the theme for me the last three or four years. And I think that's going to continue. And for those of us that are working people on the other side of this, we have to learn how to balance our lives in a much, much more complicated, distracting technology environment. And I think some of these memes like quiet quitting, you know, bore out, work your wage. The one that I'm laughing at these days is one called lazy girl jobs. If you check all this stuff out on the, <laughs> on the internet, these are, these are young people in their thirties who are basically saying, I'm not going to do it the way you guys used to do it. I'm not going to live my life like that. I'm going to have a more flexible life. And if you don't like it, I'll find someplace else to work. Yeah. Um, and that's yeah. just the reality of where we are. So it's a very different proposition. And, you know, you're right. I mean, even working with legal firms and kind of their traditional kind of assumptions around the pathway to partner, if you like, and, and employees right from day one openly saying, no, thank you. That's not where I want to go. But uh, I want a very, very different experience. And and I, I guess that brings me to, I suppose, one of your most recent pieces of, of work, well, in terms of your book, at least, you know, the last last year, I think you published uh, Irresistible, you know, and 2022, you, you researched, you know, what you call the seven secrets of the world's most enduring employee-focused organizations. And 
that seems to, from what you were just talking about, a really timely piece of work. And, and was, was that your kind of overall learning from that experience, you know, that, that we're, we're not just looking at just tweaking our employer proposition and how we attract and retain people, but actually we're looking at quite a fundamental reset in terms of an employment proposition? Is that what came out of that work? I wrote the book over a number of years and actually started before the pandemic. So, so it wasn't a new idea, but it's become very important mm. right now. I mean, the, the big simple change is the employee has, in some sense, more power and more autonomy and more authority than ever. I'm not saying that employers still tend to call the shots because they do, because, you know, the employer still can make a decision whether to hire you or not hire you. But they don't have the luxury of replacing people as fast as they want. If you are as an employer and you lose somebody who's a reasonably good fit, obviously sometimes people are not a good fit, you're going to have a problem replacing them. It's going to take time. There's going to be a learning curve. There's going to be a cost. If you can develop that person, if you can help them find a better role in the company, if you can work with their management to make sure they're getting the right experience at work, you're going to be way better off. It didn't used to be like that. If you Mm. look at the job market in the 70s and the 80s, people were afraid to quit because it was hard to find another job and the employers could do, you know, kind of whatever they wanted. I mean, it was very, very different. So so now I'm not saying all employees are becoming activists, but some are. Some employees are very mm-hmm. active, you know, in their pushback on the, you know, I think the, the funniest example of this is the UAW, which is the big automobile worker union in the United yes. States, actually won enormous concessions from the three largest automakers and, you know, in wages and benefits and various rewards. And they asked them for a four-day work week. They didn't get it, but just the fact that they asked shows how far this has gone. And by the way, we can talk about the four-day work week. I think it's coming and I think it's good. And I don't think it's as complicated as people think it is. But so that's the big change to me. And I yeah. think great employers get this and they're yeah. just going with the flow. Yeah, and that, on that, I guess it, and you're so right. I mean, and you even look at the writer's strike in, in Hollywood and you even look at the latest kind of uh, revolt, if you like, in open AI in terms of employ- the employee voice coming through, right? And uh, obviously we've had other cases too where employee whistleblowing and so on is very, very powerful. Well, while you're on that four-day week, then I guess I guess the question on people's minds is: be there's been noise about it, there's been discussion about it. Again, it's not necessarily new. How is the the research? I suppose what's on people's mind about that is the productivity question. So, really, is it possible on full pay, four days a week? You know, what does the research tell you about the productivity dividend, if you like, in terms of this, as well as the employee side? I'm going to do a big podcast on this, but let me give you the quick and simpler, you know, explanation. So. The four-day workweek initiative is called work time reduction. It's not taking five days of work and squeezing into four days. It's not taking five days of pay and reducing it to four days of pay. It's reducing the amount of time you spend at work to do the same amount of work. So you would say to yourself, well, that's ridiculous. You're just trying to, you know, exploit me. But actually, it's the opposite, because what happens is if you really look at your career, and I was thinking about this, I spent a lot of time thinking about this, I would be willing to bet easily 20 to 25% of the hours I've worked during my entire career were wasted time. Meetings, going out to coffee, going out to lunch, sitting around the office trying to find something to do. There's all sorts of dead cycles, wasting time, not being clear on who's responsible for what, et cetera. 
And so what the work time reduction four-day work week initiative is about is respecting the fact that people would like to spend fewer hours working. Most people, some people like to hang around the office just for kicks, but most people don't. And why don't we make work clearer and more productive so they can spend less time doing the same amount of work? And that is a great kind of spring cleaning exercise for companies to reduce bureaucracy. Meetings that are too long, unclear accountability for projects, too many extraneous activities that aren't relevant to the core mission. You know, there's just millions of things. This happens all the time. And and there's an, an interesting sort of study of this called the Parkinson's effect, which is the amount of work will always expand to the time available. So if I give you a project and I say you have six months to do it, it'll take you six months. If I tell you I have a week to do it, you'll probably finish it in a week. It might not be exactly the same, but you'll be more focused. And if I say to you, this project is the most important thing, don't work on anything else for the next week, and we'll talk about what's next after that, and I give you permission to say no to all the other things, you're going to take a deep breath and say, wow, great, thank you. Now I know what I can spend my time on. That's what the four-day work week is about. And that's why the results are so amazing. You get higher employee engagement, you get higher well-being, you get improved productivity, revenue increases. I mean, not spectacular, but they're all positive. And yes, that's an indication yes. to me yes. that we've reached a point in the world of work, at least in a lot of jobs, where we can operate at a much higher level of productivity because of the tools and technologies and organizational structures that we have. And that's so it's really a productivity initiative. It's not a a benefit. Indeed. And I think it's a natural extension of of a box, if you like, that's already been opened. And, and as you, you rightly say, flexibility around work and working life was not new, but I guess the pandemic accelerated, particularly the hybrid blended question in terms of where work is done. Uh, but now things like the four day week and of course AI, which we'll come on to, is also asking questions about what work is done and, and when work is done, not just where. So we've opened up this discussion and it seems to be now continuing on to the kind of next chapter, if you like, of what work design and work work flexibility is going to look like. One of the things, Kevin, that I think is coming up is a lot of people my age, baby boomers, are, have, are still very traditional thinkers. Uh, I, I posted a video on the website this week. It's a, just sort of a hilarious interaction between a young woman mm. and a an older woman who's her hiring manager, who's in her maybe 50s or 60s. And they're debating about whether you have to be in the office all week. And the young woman is kind of making little comments on the side in the video. And and she's literally laughing at the older person's perspective (laughs) on when you have to be in the office. And you read and you watch through it and you think, you know, this is exactly what's happening. Exactly. Except maybe not as kind of visible, but it's it's, it's really it's happening behind closed doors. And it's actually what people are thinking, you know, and. Maybe you could move on to one of the other things. So when I think about your work and, and career, Josh, you know, one of the most distinguishing aspects of your work has been your attention to and, and leadership around technology and how it's developing and you and your team, you know, researching and highlighting what is new in the market and making an impact and so on. And so I know the, the AI revolution, if you want to call it that, has been a natural area of focus and interest to you. And again, not new to you. What's your view on this and, and, and where it's going and the impact, obviously, in jobs and so on? And, of course, your own experiment, more than an experiment, your own productization of it, too. Well, I have just, I think it's going to be spectacular. I am not 
I, I'm not worried about AI. I, I don't understand why these people are getting all upset about it. There's an actual, a lot of research that shows that the scientists are the ones that usually don't understand the way technology is applied because they're too deeply into the science. Yes, every technology can be used for evil things, of course. I mean, every, you know, emails, et cetera, cybersecurity and, and on and on. But 99% of what's happening with AI is extraordinarily positive. You know, and there's lots of applications in business and HR. You know, the, the, this technology can take vast amounts of data or text and make sense of it. You know, for example, our implementation in our product called Galileo is we took 25 years of research and podcasts and articles and things and we and vendor information. We put it into, you know, big AI platform. You can ask it any question about HR and you can ask it things like, I'm a recruiter in a pharmaceutical company in Ireland. I'm trying to hire a senior manager. What would be the top three things you would recommend? It's not going to give you a perfect answer, but it's going to give you a pretty good answer. If they called us on the phone and they asked us that question, well, you know, I'd have to find the right analyst. We'd have to think about it a little bit. <laughs> you know, it's it's ra radically disruptive. Yeah. So a lot of what goes on in HR is this issue of, you know, how do I find the answer to this question? Who's the expert on this? What's the policy on this? So th that's one huge use case. The other huge use case of AI is data, running numbers, trying to find turnover rates, trying to look at pay inequities, trying to, trying to do recruiting and say, who's the person who has these skills versus those skills? You know, that data is really hard to analyze by hand. It's not always in one place. And AI actually technology can synthesize heterogeneous sources of data in extraordinarily amazing way. In fact, the technology is just for me fascinating. So I, I don't know. I there's the issue of bias. And I think most people know that if you load an AI system with biased data, you're going to get biased results. And that goes for recruiting, that goes for talent management, that goes for the kind of stuff we do. Like if we had you know, a bunch of case studies about one industry and only one type of company, and then you asked it a generic question, you wouldn't get a generic answer. You'd get an answer in that industry and in that company. So we know that. But now that people are aware of that, there's there's a data management piece behind this in companies to get good data into the AI. And that'll be a process that companies are going to go through. But the results are just unbelievable. And, yeah. and including day-to-day oh, yeah. -day life, scheduling meetings, I mean, it's just I could go through tons of examples. Yeah, and it's going to be it. It is exciting, and it, and it is when you, you see the the obvious kind of starting off with safe place. So I think what's very clever about Galileo is that you've there's a there's a boundary around the data set, you know, which is your own data, so it hasn't doesn't leak into the kind of broader internet, which you know has okay. So you've got that that data quality is is secured, if you like, from the outset. And we spent a year on that. And I think that's one of the, you know, sort of big issues with AI in general, even open AI, you know, they have so much data in there. I'm not sure we really know where any of it came. I'm sure I'm not sure they know where it came from, to be honest. Like in our system, any answer you get gives you inline attribution and shows you where everything came from. Um, and that took a lot of engineering, actually, to get it to do that. Yeah, but those are kinds of things that I think are make AI safer and more yeah, reliable. Yeah, and more that's safe. important. So those are important uh, examples, so people can see what good does look like. And with all these developments that we've been highlighting, Josh, just just thinking about the leadership challenge here. What's your thoughts on this? Because I know again you've written so much about this, but what do 
HR, if you like, and, and business leaders need to be thinking about to lead this next phase of change in work and what's still to come? Is there something we need to be doing differently compared to, say, how we have led, you know, traditionally over the last 20 years? And what's your thought on yeah, that? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of things. Let me, let me try to summarize it to three sort of significant things. Because we just finished a big study of this, and it's been really a couple of years of, of interviews and stuff. Number one is the characteristics and skills and strengths of leaders have to be focused on transformation, change, and I would say human-centered leadership. When I entered the workforce in the 70s, and I first started in HR, and everybody was mimicking GE and Crotonville, it was all about execution and the hard-edged, you know, the hard part, the science of, of management and business. That's all still there, but it doesn't really work if the people aren't on board. So what you're doing as a leader, almost, you know, 70 to 80% of your time is you're helping people adjust to a change. You're getting them aligned. You're developing them. You're giving them coaching. You're removing obstacles. You're giving them energy. You're clarifying what's not important. Um, those are the skills that come up, you know, and they're everywhere. They're not just in the top leaders. Everybody in a, in a big company, in some sense, is a leader. They're leading projects. They're leading meetings. They're leading teams. Maybe somebody says to you, hey, would you lead our offsite? All right, now you're a leader, mm -hmm. you know? So that that is a huge new context. The second thing is we're not spending enough money on this. We just did a big study on this. It just blew my mind. The money spent on leadership development has plummeted the last few years. I'm not sure why, but you know, when we I've done this leadership research five times in the past, you know, in different years, and this year was was you know, almost a third to fourth you know, lower in spending. And I think companies started spending money on hybrid work and mental health and all these mm -hmm. other things, and they didn't focus on this. And the reason that's a problem is that. Of all of the things that we do to facilitate the organization's, um, you know, kind of performance and improvement, working with leaders is the most important of all mm -hmm. because the leaders are the ones that are actually doing all this. And I mean, every, you know, the, so the leadership culture, the leadership behaviors um, and so forth. And then the third thing about leadership that's different is the technology part of it. There has been a, a lot of experiments and attempts to technology-enabled leadership development. All the online coaching networks, for example, better up and all the companies like that. Uh, Chatbots for leadership, e-learning for leadership, video-based leadership. I worked with Ninth House. I mean, all these companies that have done all these leadership programs online. Most of that is of some use, but the real value isn't really that. The real value is a company sitting down with the CEO, by the way, this can't be run only by HR, and deciding and discussing what is the framework, what is the culture, what are the behaviors that we reward in this company? Are we an innovation company? Are we an execution company? Are we a cost-cutting company? Are we a customer-centric company? Um, you have a lot of decisions to make. And then that gets baked into the culture and the behaviors and the reward systems that leaders basically learn from each other. And then you build a collaborative experience around that. So you can't just buy this off the shelf stuff and say, I'm done. It's really a way of, it's sort of like going to the gym and 
working on the part of your body that's the weakest and talking about it as a team, like here's a problem we have in the company and this has to do with our culture or, or, or the leadership that's going on in this area. That is so valuable. So I think technology plays a role, but I think this is one of the areas of HR where we, we can't over-rotate to technology. No, there's a real sense. I, I, I definitely would agree with that in terms of the focus on honest conversations about culture and, and who we are and what we're about. That definitely has increased in the last couple of years, as, as opposed to being a kind of a platitude or just a, a tick box exercise. There's, well, you know, the funny no one, doubt. I was just listening this morning. So Novo Nordisk, if you know, you know, they're, they're now the most, apparently the most valuable company in all of Europe because they have the weight loss drugs. And then you read the stories about Novo Nordisk, you know, the Danish culture. It's actually a really kind of a laid back, sciencey place. So, you know, just because they're worth all this money and they have this blockbuster drug, do they have to suddenly become, you know, this, you know, financial behemoth running around trying to get get market share? No, they need to stay where they are. I'm sure there's a lot of stress in that company right now, how to deal with this massive demand for that product. Th those are leadership issues that come up all the time. And there's also the reverse ones when you're a great company and then a bad thing happens. What are we going to do about it? So, those are business problems that are always coupled with the leadership strategy. If I could just, I know it's taking it outside the organizational domain and the talent marketplace, et cetera, but you know, you do feel with this level of, of change and disruption and technology evolution and so on, how does this need to show up at societal level? I mean, I know that's a big question for a couple of minutes, but you know, is there something we need to change, you know, in terms of our our assumptions or our models around education, skills, employment policy in terms of access to, to jobs and other areas. How is that going to look different? I mean, I, I live in a, in a very heterogeneous city with a lot of lower income people. I think there's two big, broad societal issues. And I'm not a politician and not really interested in being a politician. But, you know, do we have the educational opportunities? Do we have the laws, the fairness? the uh, EEOC, so that people who didn't go to college, whose parents didn't go to college, who don't have a lot of money, can get the training and education and skills they need to go find a good job, et cetera. And there's a million things going on in that area. But I'm more interested in the employer side. And what employers are doing, which is really magnificent, really, is they, they get it. They understand that they're not going to be able to grow their companies without hiring people who don't have college degrees who may not be experienced in the role that they're looking for. So they will develop them. They will coach them. They will give them onboarding or certifications internally. They will give them career advice. I mean, there's a complete concurrence in every company I talk to now that we have to invest in the development of our people. We have to hire people inclusively, regardless of degree. We need to look for skills and capabilities, not pedigrees. I mean, this used to be kind of a debate. It's not. It's yes, universal. Yes. Yeah. So uh, so I think the society will be made better by both of these things happening. I think the employers are moving faster than the educational institutions. The educational institutions, to some degree, have a monopoly, or they did, that's being broken down because people are saying, I can't afford this. And by the way, I'm not sure this degree is worth it. So maybe I won't bother with it. So I think they're going through their own reinvention too. But but on the employer side, it's happened already. It's happening really fast. And it's very common for us to have conversations with companies 
to try to build a kind of a whole new way of sourcing people that says, you know, let's let's go into locations and, you know, pockets of of the of the workforce that were not tra- traditional groups that we thought of yep. before, but but they're perfect fits for our organization. So let's attract them and then let's develop them. Yeah, and, and there's some business sense too there because there's maybe not so as much demand. We're not chasing after the same kind of limited talent, uh, you know, pools anymore as well. So we're, we've diversified our pool. So it makes sense. It's also, I suppose, there's a convergence too of agendas around things like ESG, you know, the social side, for instance, the sustainability of, of organizations and skill sets in the future, and even the investment community beginning to ask questions about, well, how are you, what are you doing as an employer in this area? There's actually an interesting theme. I wrote about it in HBR, and, and it's started in Europe, called people sustainability, mm-hmm. which is that you can be sustainable for the environment and energy and raw materials. But then if you don't have a diverse and inclusive sourcing and hiring and development process inside your company, then you have a people sustainability problem. So so I think the word sustainability can be applied to 100%. some of the DEI issues we have in HR too. Maybe just a final, some final thoughts, uh, Josh, on, on what all this means as well at individual levels. So, you know, I know we're going from macro to micro here, but, you know, one of the things particularly in this podcast we're sort of interested in, in, in terms of skills and future fitness at the individual level and what individuals need to be doing as well to future-proof their own careers as well. And uh, what's your sense of that in terms of what people should themselves be doing to, to future-proof their own you know, futures and careers? Well, it's, it's a pretty simple comment I'm going to make, but it's maybe profound. And that is that we all have to basically be learning all of the time throughout our entire career. There is no time when you've ever learned enough. And there was, you know, Charlie Munger, the famous investor that worked with Warren Buffett, died this week. And there's a lot of podcasts and stuff about him. And basically what he says is all I did all day was read all the time. I was constantly learning up until the age of 99. And that's the way careers are. That's the way you can be successful because we're living longer and the jobs and the roles and the responsibilities and the technologies we have at work keep changing. And if we're not keeping up, we fall behind. We're, we're, the, we're the, the legacy part of the company. And there's no excuse for that. The human brain is incredibly adaptable. And I, I believe in what I call the unquenchable power of the human spirit. And what I mean by that is that if we give people the opportunities to reinvent themselves and we give them a supportive environment, they will. They That is a survival instinct we have as human beings. We also have a learning instinct. We're learning from the minute we're born. And you want to, you don't want to, you want to sponsor that. You want to, you know, take Duolingo courses. If you want to learn languages, whatever it is, uh, you know, learn. I learned about AI. I've never taken a course on AI, but I talked to a lot of people, watched a lot of YouTubes, read a lot of books and articles about it. And and we all have to be like that. And, yes. and everybody learns in their own way. And the more you understand how you learn and what sources work for you, the more successful you're going to be. And I think that's pretty much it. If you do that and you simply kind of philosophize in your own career that you're here to help other people, not only yourself, then you're going to have a great career for a long, long time. Yeah, and, and that learning mindset to know enough, Josh, isn't it? It's a wonderful example you gave of the AI. There's enough knowledge, there's enough people out there to, who are experts and so on that you know we can know enough to make our next pivot, to adjust to changing circumstances and so on. 
Look, wonderful. Maybe, maybe just to finish uh, again, uh, what, what would you be most hopeful about in terms of the next phase of work? I mean, people, some folks are a little bit fearful, they're concerned, there's a bit of stress in the systems, burnout and so on, except, and people are asking questions, gosh, where is this going? You know, and, uh, and you know, is the glass half full <laughs> or half empty in terms of the world of work? So what's your, what's your final thought on that? Two thoughts on that. First of all, you know, I work with HR people. So I work with the mo- some of the most kindest, most enjoyable, you know, kind of developmental oriented people in business. So most companies have lots and lots of individuals in the company that are there to help you. So if you have a job and you're stuck and you don't like what you're doing, you know, explore the resources inside of the company, et cetera. Number two, sometimes things don't work out. I have had bosses that didn't work out. I have had companies that didn't work out. I have had situations at work that were destructive to my self-confidence and destructive to my career. And sometimes you have to just take a deep breath and leave and find something else. Not every company is an irresistible company. Not every manager is an irresistible manager. And if there's something that's not working, it's okay for you to leave. There are a lot of jobs And you have to sort of have faith that something better will come along. I was laid off early in sort of the middle of my career. And I remember I came home in shock that day. And within two weeks, I had found something else to do that I wanted to do. And it turned out to be a Mm. great thing. But it was Mm. two weeks of agonizing self-discovery to get sort of pull myself up by my bootstraps and get started again. So that will happen. And I think you just have to be okay with that. And mm-hmm. if, the, if you do those two things, work is going to be great. Companies are working harder and harder and harder to make work better and easier and more developmental for mm-hmm. people. So I have basically a totally glass half full attitude about this. Well, Josh, that's a, that's a great place and a, and a great note to finish on. So, you know, just goes to for me to say to us, thank you for joining us today and, and best of luck with your ongoing work, which I know is of huge value to HR and business leaders around the world and, and best wishes to your colleagues at the Josh Burson Company. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for listening to the Changing World of Work podcast. Join us next time as we speak to experts about the trends, innovations and developments affecting workers and our workplaces.